You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. My name is Jay Mack, live in St. Louis. Sam Wade in Los Angeles. We are two lifelong friends who bonded over a love of music, recorded music together when we were teenagers, lost touch for a while, got back in contact, recorded some music, and now we're doing a podcast. We both grew up in St. Louis. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zero in even more, Jeremy, and say that we grew up in North County, St. Louis, because I think it's important, you know, because people measure where you live in St. Louis by where you grew up. But we're from North County, right? Grew up in Hazelwood, Ferguson, and Florissant, like right in that area. No co. No co. It was not an upscale neighborhood. It's actually gotten worse. But at the time, it was it was kind of lower middle class, but safe lower middle class, which enabled us to walk the streets and play music on the patio and and lug our musical equipment back and forth. Because we, we literally lived about, what'd you say, maybe a half mile from each other? Yep, absolutely. And here's a little tidbit that I didn't, I, I forgot to mention. You originally wanted to get into skateboarding as your way to be friends with me. Do you remember that? <laughs> I wanted to skateboard very badly, but I could not skateboard at all. I was terrible. <laughs> Didn't you injure yourself? Probably. I, I, that was, I was the kid that would always get hurt. Like I wouldn't climb a tree because I would fall out of it. <laughs> if I tried on a skateboard, I, I didn't have the good balance, you know? <laughs> I tried it. I remember, okay, there was a kid that uh, I, I remember, like, I traded him something for his skateboard, his extra one, that I think might have been yours originally. Do you remember that? Should we should we just call him Corey? you remember Corey? Oh, yeah. I, I gave Corey one of my junky old boards or something. Yeah, because we, what, I would wear them out, and then I would give them yeah. to you or Corey, and then you guys would, like, swap meet them and figure out what you wanted. Right. I think I traded him, like, a Beatles tape or something for it. I, I can't even remember now. But I, I promptly um, tried to ride that and had it uh, fly out from underneath me and probably injured my my tailbone or something like that. <laughs> For this episode, I want to kind of get into where we went after we sort of grew up and left our parents' house and moved out of that neighborhood. Because me and you took a very similar but very different path at the same time. It was like... My first recollection was you started to get into live performing, and I continued to be in the studio. Is does that make any? Is, is that right? I, I think that's a that's a fair way to look at it for sure. Because uh, yeah, no, I I definitely had joined um, some kind of band and playing playing music uh, on Sunday mornings too at church. My first experience playing live was was in the church band, but I I got to tell you, I never enjoyed it. I never found it stimulating. I found I found it boring. But it was it was the only time I was ever in, in front of people playing. But I remember digging really deep, and like every year, I remember in the winter time I would start doing preparing for my album, quote air quotes for those of you who can't see, and I would begin to write <laughs> songs because I couldn't get out and skateboard, so I would write my songs in the winter time, record and have it ready for a spring release. <laughs> that makes so much sense. But I got married at the age of 19, so my musical my musical dreams went on hold. I bought a Tascam 8-track, which is, I've got a picture of it, and I just, I my, my recording technology got better. My songwriting was, I was still polishing that. But I do, I do remember kind of wondering, will I ever play any of this live? Because ultimately with music, 
you kind of, that's always in the back of your mind. I want to play this live. I want people to hear this music. How did you approach taking your music from the studio to the stage? I think the whole reason at that point that I would even want to record it was so so that I could uh, get it onto a stage somewhere and play it in front of people. Um, because for me, like, I made, I don't know, I think we both self-released between like three and four tapes uh, during during high school. And I remember the last one, like going and peddling it like all over high school, selling them for like five bucks a pop out of my backpack. And I sold enough. I even roped a, a few of my friends to help me sell them and cover more uh, more ground in the school. <laughs> but uh, it was fun. And it, it got me a gig. I, I played it like the, the, the National Honor Society bonfire. But uh, they gave me like a half an hour and I got to go up and sing my songs. And then they let me like play at the uh, at the alternative party for high school graduation. You know, things like that. But I got enough money from just walking around and selling tapes from my bag to go and actually get my first real guitar. It was like all part of the same thing. Like I'm going to record this music so I can share it with people and maybe I'll get to sing it in front of uh, sing it live. Um, I don't, I don't know how much you do this too, but like I would carry my guitar with me and at school I would carry it around to all my classes and then I would go and like sit in the, in the cafeteria in the big hub is what they call it with like, a, you know, hundreds of kids and just sit there and play my guitar. And people would walk by and listen for a minute. So I was just really starving for that kind of uh, environment. I was much more shy about sharing my music because, first of all, just stylistically, you were much more formed earlier than I was, like for what you kind of wanted to do. You you were very much a singer-songwriter. I couldn't decide if I wanted, I wanted to be a thrash musician or uh, a balladeer, so that my tapes were not as readily sold. I would intentionally put a thrash song, an acoustic song, a thrash song, an acoustic song. I, w- I, w- I never separated them into sides. And so people would like be like, la, 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 la. <laughs> and in fact, my second, my second album was called Chainsaws and Whoopee Cushions with the express in purpose of keeping the listener so off balance that they never knew if they were listening to something scary or something hilarious. And, and so my musical taste and musical direction was not so much formed. I didn't really want people to hear me play Chainsaws and Whoopee Cushions. I don't know who, why I did those songs. I did have some good songs, but I was so self-conscious about them, I never wanted to play them live. So you were much quicker to get out there and play your songs live. I would, I would play my guitar in public. I'd go, well, like, in a parking lot, Alone on the Moon. I wrote it in a parking lot. I had an audience... But I went out there without an audience, and I got an audience. I, I got the impression from you that you went to where the people were at so you could sit there and be like, baby, I'm going to be the one that saves me. <laughs> Why was your music so much earlier formed, your direction, and was did that, did, did that play into how comfortable you were playing it live? Because I was terrified to play any of my shit live because I was, not, I was not confident in it. But you seemed very confident from an early age that you were writing good songs. Well, thank you. Um, I don't know that I would have agreed with you when I was that age. I think I think for me, it's probably a few things, but definitely being being around it uh, in the context uh, in the context of seeing my parents play music from a young age, getting up on stage, I think was was important for me. But I'll tell you, when I started playing guitar, the summer I turned fifteen years old, 
I wrote two songs like the in the first two weeks that I played. And then like two weeks after that, I was at summer camp. And I just sat down on a park bench with an acoustic guitar just by myself. And within like five minutes, there was like two girls sitting there listening. And then those two girls sitting there listening would turn into like 10 girls sitting there listening. And I would sing them these songs. They would get like misty eyed and like just love it. And I was like, okay, this is addictive. (laughs) That was certainly part of it, too. No, I was never that confident. I, I did have a couple songs that the ladies did like, but I was... I don't know if it was my upbringing, but I was very uncomfortable expressing my emotion publicly through my music. I think that's why I gravitated toward doing heavy, heavy music because I could, I could be angry and angry. Anger was comfortable for me to to be publicly angry, but I was very, very sensitive underneath my, my mullet and my hairy boy chest or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And I was always very self-conscious about my emotion in my music, but I, I, and that really, I felt like never really went away until um, I was much older than you were. Like you were like very in touch with your your emotions very early on, and I remember actually being uncomfortable with how emotional some of your songs were. Oh, that's a funny thought. Um, I need to go back and listen to those. Maybe they were twisted. <laughs> but no, I think that like. Um... I think that that's part of it for me. It was like, like it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't only about like singing it for, for, for girls. Um, although that was awesome um, because I wanted to be cool, I guess. But it was also like, you know, there was that artist, if you want to call it somewhere inside, like feeling that like I had something to say, even though I did, probably didn't have much to say then there was a drive to find for that. And I think that that probably is influenced by, some of the people, some of the songwriters I listen to as well, you know, guys like Larry Norman, who I know that we'll talk about at some point in the future, was very much like into writing songs that had a purpose, that had a message, you know. And so I think that that was part of it for me, too. Now, um, I, I definitely got that early on. So we're kind of talking about where we went from the neighborhood. You moved from St. Louis Pretty, you you moved, or I never, I'm still in St. Louis. My 20s were spent being married and just kind of trying to figure out how music fit into any part of my life. What were you doing in your 20s? I have, to, I have the memory that you moved away from St. Louis in your late 20s. Am I, am I getting that right, or, or is a timeline off there? It's actually, um, I didn't move from St. Louis until a lot longer than that, permanently. Um, but I did travel a lot during that time. Part of it was that I eventually moved to the city, which... When you grow up in North County, moving to the city of St. Louis might as well be moving away because it feels like so far, far away when you're a kid and like, ooh, I'm going to go down to the loop. That's where like everybody does heroin on the street. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, which is nothing like the reality, but that's what we believed growing up. I traveled a lot. I went to a performing arts uh, school and we would uh, put together a production and then go out on the road for two or three weeks at a time in, in a van um, so that was part of the early part of that time. And then later on, you know, I formed bands and we would go and, and play shows. Um, I was married at the time, too. And, uh, you know, that that definitely played into like where I was in St. Louis. But I didn't even leave St. Louis permanently until a lot longer after that. I just think that it was probably the location was a big part of that. Like we didn't make a lot of music during that time period. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't until later that we reconnected. 
um, and start doing the things that, that we're doing now. I guess my memory is you being very much on the move. You're, you're right. You did move downtown and you were just very on the move. I, ne- I We didn't really talk much because you were doing this over here and over here and over here. And I was pretty much working the same job, married, trying to get a house. Music was definitely on the back burner and really didn't come back to the forefront in my life until my early 30s when I actually formed my first band and started to play out live, which is, uh, I guess, um, we'll fast forward to the 30s now. My first band, I, I, I had to lie to them that I, w- I didn't want them to know I was homeschooled. So I told them I went to McClure High School, which is the high school you went to. And right. I was so self-conscious about my musical past I didn't know any of the bands they were talking about. I didn't know any of the songs they were talking about. And I was I was trying to start a cover band and I had to lie. Oh yeah, I know that Green Day song. So I was I was in a very much a weird kind of undercover pretending to be somebody that I wasn't in my early 30s when I got into the band. And somehow the band started to get popular enough that we were playing out every every other weekend making 100 150 bucks a pop a person. I got to tell you to wait until you're 30 to be a front man, I was the singer and guitar player in band. I would I'd never been on stage except in church. And here I am in a bar with like a hundred people staring <laughs> at me. And I got to pretend I know what the hell I'm doing. Um, it was very intimidating, very frightening. And I really do feel like it kind of led to a nervous breakdown later, like after the band broke up. Cause I was so in so much shock from having to ad- adapt to be a charismatic front man that when it came to an end, my, my, my nervous system literally did not know what to do with all this, I'll call it peacocking, wow. the peacocking that I used to do, like just like the attitude that you would get when you're on stage, the high from performing. It was very addictive. And to wait till you're 30 to start that was very disorienting. What were you doing in your 30s? Let's see. In my 30s, uh, when I started my 30s, I actually spent – that summer moonlighting in a band. Um, uh, cause I, well, let me, let me back up just a little bit right there at the turn of my thirties. I went through probably one of the hardest years of my life where, uh, a lot of things came crashing down, um, which happens sometimes, but it was like one of those moments where you step back and like take stock of things. I think it aged me pretty quickly in a lot of ways that I thought about things. And so I was like looking for ways to go and, and find, find new creative projects to be a part of. And I reconnected uh, with a friend of mine that I knew all the way back from grade school as well, um, who was in a band in Dallas called uh, Oil Boom. Um, they were an awesome, they're still an amazing band. Um, they're fortunately not together anymore, but their music is still easy to find. And I highly recommend taking a listen to it. But I, I toured with them regionally uh, through like Oklahoma and we went to Missouri. We were in Texas. There might have been some other, might have played a show in Arkansas. I, I can't remember for sure, Kansas, but just right around in that area. And it was cool. It was like this, this moment. I think at that point I hadn't like been on the road with a band like that before. So it was a good experiment. Um, we made some great music. And then I also had this other project at the time that I was working on that I was recording an album. And that was like the big epic thing. I was like, this is going to be it kind of a deal. But I would say over the the course of the 30s for me was like uh, getting used to some of these ideas. 
about making music and what it means. And, and I, I ended up, you know, going back to St. Louis and I had a band there for a while, too, that we mostly played shows for ourselves in our rehearsal space. You know what I mean? I just kept trying to chase the chase the inspiration from where from where I wherever I could find it. I will say this. I, we had some killer concerts, me and my band in the basement when nobody was there, just really because you're you, you're looser in rehearsal than you are on stage. And the drummer that I was playing with at the time told me, he goes, he goes, you don't really perform the songs for about three or four months. You just you play the songs until you get comfortable enough to perform them. And I would say the crucible of, of that basement with the band, um, my first real band, was very exciting and very it was intoxicating. And there were some really great jam sessions that we had in the basement. It did give me this kind of feeling of like invincibility when when i was on stage and and oasis has a line in the song don't look back in anger that says please don't put your life in the hands of a rock and roll band you'll throw it all away and when that band which was very very talented musicians when that fell apart that line came into into my head i thought i was invincible because i had all these people around me and and we would be on stage and we'd be playing war pigs or whatever we'd, we'd be playing and just ripping the place up and everybody was excited but it's very lonely when the lights go off. And you don't, I found I didn't really know what to do with myself when the lights went off. How did you react to the death of various projects that you went through? Were you, were you always quickly onto the next one? Because I probably grieved for probably about a year after my band fell apart. Because we were together about a year and a half, had some great shows. And there was just this huge empty hole in, in, my, in my life. Because I put so much priority on the band as like this this juggernaut, and then when it wasn't there, I was I was bereft. I really was. I went through a horrible depression after that. How did you react to when your projects ended? That's a really good question. Um, it's been different for each one, but I would say that the first one that I did, we had this band called Northside Sweet Revenge, which sounds cool, but it's a terrible name for marketing <laughs> with the apostrophe in there, but. Um, in retrospect, that was a terrible band name. But when that one ended, it was a really weird thing because we had just started to get some traction, maybe, in St. Louis. We had done, like, a a thing for, like, Cable Act, did a live show that was on there. And we got a write-up in one of the music magazines there in St. Louis. You know, like, all the things that you, like, all these benchmarks for what you're trying to do. And we had started to do that, but, like, the band had started to fracture at that point. So that one, it just kind of fizzled out. And it was definitely... Um, I didn't know for sure what to do right away. The way that I deal with that kind of stuff is I just work more, <laughs> which I don't know <laughs> if that's necessarily a good thing. That's why you get, that's why you get burnout. Um, just bury all the, <laughs> that's why I get burnout. Yeah. It is. Oh my God. It is definitely why I get burnout. I just keep working more and more and more. And so like, it wasn't long after that project uh, ended that I started another one and I would just keep doing it. Um, until I burned out and then I'd have like a good space of time where I didn't do anything. I don't know. I think it was about, I just wanted to, I was addicted to being on stage too, or just performing and, and getting the vibe off the audience. There's nothing like it when you feel like you're in a room with people and there's like an energy transference maybe that, that happens where everybody's like really into it. Right. It wasn't even about being up on stage and being like trying to be an icon or anything. I think it was more about 
the community that kind of happens around the music there live. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for me, for me, it was it started to lean more towards me being the center of attention and me liking to be the center of attention, which I mean, that's my personality. I mean, generally, if I feel comfortable, I like to be the center of attention. I mean, I, I wasn't like egotistical in the band. I mean, they, the fact I, I was told by the band members, you're, you're the easiest singer we've ever worked with. But it was definitely became more about me maybe than than it should have been, which I guess is the trap you fall into when you're the front man and you're the singer. You kind of begin to think that you're cooler than you are. I mean, does that make sense? It does make sense. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm completely humble when it comes to this type of stuff. <laughs> I've definitely had those moments where, like, where, like, the ego wants to rule the roost. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, hopefully learn from those things. But, yeah. No, there's, dude, there's nothing like it. Like, going up on stage and, like, you have, you have the audience there and, like, they're listening to what you say. You know, and you're like, you tell them to, like, start moshing, and they do, you know, or whatever it is, you know. I'm going to drop this name, and it's it's way, it's not actually true, but I began to have kind of this Jim Morrison kind of attitude about myself when I was on stage, which was really unhealthy, I'm sure. That was really, like, armor for me. Does that make sense? It was armor for me to protect myself about how insecure I actually was about my voice and that I was going bald and all those other things. It was It was like, it was a shield that I put up, and I found that I was using it to protect myself from people and internalizing everything. And it was really unhealthy. Yeah, man, I see what you're saying. Um, I can relate to that. I mean, I think for me in that sense, music, when my life has been, had, had my life has had a few moments where like, just it seems like things get turned upside down. I don't think that I'm special from other people by that either. I think that that happens to probably everybody at some point. But for me, when those things would happen, the music was the normalcy, like an escape. You know, I could always go down to the rehearsal space and like rock out with with my dudes and not worry about whatever was going on besides that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for me, I was I was very lonely because uh, because I'd hidden so much from my band about my past and who I had been before I was in the band and like the fact that I was so ignorant about everything. I mean, there was some camaraderie in the band, but not really because I never really was honest with them about things. And I feel like that was a, a wrong choice. But if I would have told them the truth, I don't think they ever would have accepted me as the lead singer other than I had the rehearsal space in the PA. <laughs> I had a power. <laughs> so you were more, I think that you, they probably would have been okay with it. If I, if I think about it, just, just for what it's worth. Cause I think that you're a phenomenal singer, obviously from the stuff that we've worked on together. Thank you. Um, but thank yeah, you. isn't it interesting how like you kind of get stuck in a moment in those times. So you're saying you were you were more honest with your bandmates. You didn't lie about your upbringing and things like that. Because, dude, I mean, everything about me was was not. I mean, I'm not saying I lied about like that I was married or shit because they knew I had a wife and stuff. But like, it was just very, I was very walled off in a in a weird way. And I think they knew it. And I think it later caused problems because um, whenever things mm. didn't didn't go right, I kind of blew a fuse, and they had no way of understanding why I was blowing a fuse about certain things because I, I hadn't I hadn't told them this is my first real band that I'd only played in church and that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Joe Walsh had a quote one time. He said that he was terrified when he was making his records that people were going to find out he didn't know what he was doing. And that was definitely me on a lot of levels. I was terrified that they were going to find me out for the, for the fraud that I felt like I was. 
Yeah, I've I've heard it described as imposter syndrome. Yes. Dude, I still struggle with that now. When are people going to find out that I don't really know what I'm doing, even though I do? It's that it's that insecurity that I, I feel like a lot of people relate with. You know what I mean? For me, when I realized that, that like almost everybody at some point are being like, someone's going to figure out like I'm just I'm just trying to hold it together and figure <laughs> out what I can in between. Like, like everybody feels that stuff when you're like, oh, OK, that's just a part of being human, I think, you know. I'm glad to hear you say that, but it was it was really terrifying for me. We'll end the show with this with my next topic here, and that's um, when I started to have trouble playing my guitar in my in my mid 30s. There's no medical reason to make this uh, comparison, but I feel like mentally my mind broke, my spirit broke, and I began to have trouble playing the guitar, and it was really weird. And it went on for years. I went to doctors and. At first, they thought it was carpal tunnel because of my job. I was really depressed. I was having, my muscles were getting stiff. Turns out, um, at the age of 37, I was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease, which so much of my life had started to make sense. All the struggles that I'd been having since my early 30s, uh, probably around the, th- the age of 30, I told, I told my wife, I've never felt good a day after 30. And she was like, stop, you're just, you're just exaggerating. But I never did. And I feel like the strain of being in a band maybe hastened something that was already going to happen. And that was a real, real desperate time for me because I suddenly couldn't play my guitar. I couldn't play my sitar. I was having trouble with my voice. I was depressed. I had no motivation or anything. I was, I just was flatlining. I, I thought my musical career was over. I thought my life was over, to tell you the truth, because I, I had all these mysterious symptoms for so long I sold, I sold several of my instruments, some, my amps, a bunch of stuff. Um, I was out of work, couldn't work. But once I figured out what it was, they, they, I was able to have some relief from some medication I took. And I tell you what, music brought me back from that really, really, really dark time. I can't ex- explain what it's like to be given a diagnosis of like, you, you've got an old man's disease at the age of 37, suffering from it from the age of probably 31, 32, when, when I was in the band. And suddenly all these, these symptoms that I had, my stiff hand, my hoarse voice, the back pain, all made sense. But music brought me back, dude. It really did. And even to this day, when I get up in the morning, I, when I'm not on my pills and my, mus- my muscles are not working all that well, if my hands can get a record on the turntable, I'm, I'm, I'm there, dude. In fact, my lady will be like, why do you always turn on Van Halen in the morning? What did I give you? <laughs> it's like, because it, it, it feeds my soul and it, it feeds my brain in a way that, that I can't explain. And I think you probably got some similar thing, maybe not, obviously not Parkinson's, but you, you spoke to, mu- to music's therapeutic value to you. I totally relate to what you're saying, like when, that it become, like it like almost becomes like an anchor. Uh, when you're in the storm, right? Yes. I mean, that sounds like song, uh, like song lyrics there. Yeah, <laughs> write it down. But uh, I, th- I, I kind of touched on it a little bit before when I was talking about like in some of the turmoil in life that uh, that music kind of was an escape. And for me as a songwriter, um, I would write it into the lyrics um, and I would make it a part of the narrative of what I was singing about. I remember there's a song... I think this is actually out of print right now. Um, there's a song that I did called called uh, called Novocaine, and it was like this really um, 
atmospheric piano ballad that ends up turning into like sounding like something off of a Beatles record, actually, with like backwards pianos and harps and all sorts of crazy sounds. But the song is all about like just feeling lonely walking down in the street. Uh, I'm feeling like you're walking in slow motion while everybody is just racing by you. Um, I can relate to that. And wanting to, <laughs> to dull. <laughs> and it was like, you know, I just remember that it was written from a very visceral moment when I was going through, again, one of the darkest points that I've seen. And, and uh, but I was like, my way of getting out of that was capture it into a song, to write it and encode it into something that I could then play. And then every time I play it, I could let it go even a little bit more, maybe. I don't know if that makes any kind of sense. No, it does. I don't think I even totally realized that that's what I was doing then. But I think it definitely helped to be able to find some, to bring some kind of meaning into something that didn't make sense to life. For me, music has definitely been the anchor that has kept me grounded. Even when I was going through my depression and before I found out I was sick and all this stuff, I never stopped listening to music. I might have been having trouble playing it. I always had CDs in the car. I would sing in the car. We had the turntable in the living room. And even to this day, um, I mean, like, for instance, this morning was not a good morning for me. I woke up in a lot of pain. It was not fun. But I turned on uh, some Joe Walsh, speaking of Joe Walsh, and it just the rhythm and the sound kind of gets your mind in a different place. There's valid medical research that musical th- does have music has therapeutic value. Two things has have saved my life, my family, and and music. Whether it's my music or music I'm listening to, my my wife is so happy that we're doing this this music together. She's like, it's so cool to see like you your your eyes light up when when Sam calls and says. I need I need a sitar overdub on blah 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 and he's, she's like you run upstairs and you sit down and I hear ping ping when I was doing the the backing vocals to uh, to one of the tracks that shall be that's going to be released here pretty quickly I was doing it like in a high pitched voice you know what I'm you know what I'm talking about yeah and she was like she was la- downstairs laughing because she said you sounded like you were having so much fun up there she's like I didn't know why you were singing in such a weird voice. But I was like, I was trying to sound like a like a little alien. She's like, well, uh, mission accomplished. So so <laughs> so she really she sees the light in my eyes, even when I'm having a rough day. There's been times um, where um, some of the songs that we worked on previous, like Head Down Blues, I was I couldn't move. I was stuck. Mm-hmm. Parkinson. Sometimes you get stuck. It's very difficult to move at times. I wrote the lyrics to that song uh, when I was having a really bad day and was having trouble getting around. Because you can't stop my mind from working. Like it could be with anxiety or your depression. Find some some window to get in there and music music will save your life. It really, really will. And I've heard that numerous times. It's it's just exciting to be able to do this. And not not only that, but then not, not to do this podcast on top of it. Because there's not really anybody else in the world that I can talk with about music like this. Because we grew up a few blocks from each other in St. Louis. <laughs> And we just share so many of the same experiences that it's it's like you're my musical brother. Um, yep. My sitar teacher like kind of referred to himself, like his his students as his children. He was like, he said, 
Uh, and we can get into this at like a different time. But he told me, he goes, I will, he's like, I don't mm-hmm. really believe in an afterlife, but he's like, I will live through ever, forever through my students. And so just like he was sort of like my musical father in a certain way, I feel like you were like a musical brother to me. And it's it's really cool that we we definitely speak the same language. And I'm I'm hoping people will dig this show and that we won't go over people's heads. But I feel like if we're real and we're honest and we just talk from our personal experiences without any bullshit, I really think we're going to have a fun time doing this show. And I think people are going to enjoy listening to it. Well, listen, man, I sure hope so. And I think it's a it's it's incredibly cool. Like I've had people tell me for a while, you, you should do a podcast. You should do a podcast. And I'll be like, I just don't know if I have anything to say or I don't have the time. Oh, or, my God. You don't think you have anything to say? To, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the funny thing is when we talk about it, we, when, when we talked about doing a podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. There's it just makes sense. Um, and I, I totally agree with the idea of being like brothers. I mean, like, like I literally would not be writing songs the way I am and have been for all these years. Or learning how to record and get better at that, or anything involved with that. Like a lot of that begins with what we did as teenagers with literally just two tape decks, you know, in your parents' basement recording our songs. It begins there in a lot of ways for me. So it's kind of like a really cool full circle. And I, you know, I totally agree. If we can just, you know, be honest and just put it out there, I, I, you know, Hopefully, people will be able to take something away from it. For two tape decks and a mixing board, I'm Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade. Saying, stay Stay cosmic. cosmic.